the beginning of this Lenten season of repentance, I want to ask about your soul. Does your soul hunger for God? Or is your soul right now dry and barren? See, there are times when Christians can, can feel ourselves to be in a spiritual desert where God seems incredibly distant and where our lives feel dry and fruitless. Worship can seem empty. Our souls may feel dead. We're going to look today at the record of a woman whose heart was moved deeply in the worship of Jesus It's a story that the Bible says was to be told in memory of her, that we might learn from her and that our hearts and our souls might benefit. We're going to read Matthew 26. I'll read the first 13 verses in your pew Bible. We're on page 1542. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, He said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. And then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted to arrest Jesus in some sly way and kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. And when the disciples saw this, they were indignant Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. We see this profound act of personal worship by a woman who we know through John's gospel to be Mary, the sister of Martha and of Lazarus. What is worship? Why is it so hard? And how is it possible? First question, what is worship? Worship is a delight-filled expression of worth and beauty and adoration. That's what we see. Uh, This woman Mary, in her private act of, of worship, she is delighting in Jesus. She is adoring him. Her heart 
is, is moved with love for him. You know, when, when we talk of worship, we can talk of, of three different contexts. The broadest context is, is living all of life before the face of God. All of life, coram deo. All of life is a response to God's grace, is an act of worship. Whether you're, you're cleaning a baby's diaper or vacuuming or, or working as a lawyer in Clayton or driving down the street, doing it all, whatever you do to the glory of God, so that in all of life you're delighting in God. That's the, the most expansive sense in which we talk about worship. We also talk about it as what we're doing this morning, corporate worship. In, in the Old Testament, it was worshiping the Lord and the assembly of his people. And in the New Testament, it's, it's where you see in the book of Acts where, where the, the, the Christians were devoted to the fellowship and they were breaking bread together. They were worshiping together, meeting together in the temple courts. And, and how later on, as they traveled, they would even stop on the, the first day of the week, on the Lord's day, they would stop for the breaking of bread, that is for uh, the fraction, for, for communion, for the Eucharist. Uh, how the author of Hebrews says, don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but instead encourage one another because corporate worship is with the preaching of the word and the reading of the word and the sacraments and this opportunity to encourage one another because we cannot worship God alone very long. We need each other. We're the family of God, and yet what we see in the instance of this woman is, is the most personal sense of worship, personal worship where it's that response that you personally have to adore God, to seek God, to delight in him, to savor his goodness to you, to give him thanks. Uh, it, it's what we see with Mary when she pours out this expensive, extravagant bottle of perfume on Jesus A.W. Tozer says, Worship is to feel in the heart and express in appropriate manner a humbling but delightful sense of admiring awe. He goes on to say, We can admire something without worshiping it. But he says, You can never worship something unless you admire it. This means your emotions should be engaged. It's not just something you do by road. It's not just something that you do as an act of the will. Is your heart filled with admiration of God? Delight in Jesus' Son. Do you long to see God's face? Is he a thing of ultimate beauty to you? Are you hungry for him? Does your soul hunger indeed faint for the courts of the Lord, as the psalmist says? Are you captivated by the beauty of God's holiness? Are you drawn to him like an insect, drawn to a lamppost at night? You just, you so brilliant and so bright, you're drawn to it and you can't help but to seek it. Does the thought of God move you emotionally? Does it pull at your affections? Do you love God? Does he make your soul happy? Do you seek your satisfaction in him? Do you enjoy him forever? In the language of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, do you long to glorify him and enjoy him, to delight in him? Is your heart engaged? Do you miss God when he seems distant? Is he your vision? Is he your best thought by day or by night? Worship is a delight-filled expression of worth and beauty and adoration, and it's, it's an invitation to join into something that's so much bigger than you or me or this church. It's something, something that's always playing in the background, the joyful song of creation, delighting in God, worshiping its God. You know, you look at the beauty of a fierce landscape or the splendor that bursts forth in a flower-filled valley surrounded by the mountains or the crush of waves against the rocks on the seashore. You see the harmony and you hear 
hear the harmony, the sounds of wind and leaves moving in, in, in grasshoppers, birds and frogs, the rustle of grass in the wind. What you're hearing is the sound of worship as all creation joins in a continual, never-ending song of praise to the God who made it and sustains it moment by moment. You see, can you see the wonder of it all? You are surrounded by a cosmos that is worshiping its creator. Can you hear this song? Psalm 66, all the earth worships you and sings praises to you, O Lord. They sing praises to your name. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Psalm 96, Isaiah 43, the wild animals, God says, honor me just by being wild animals. They're what God made them to be. They're not like us. The jackals and the owls praise me, he says. Like the reading from Isaiah that Michelle gave, that the trees of the field will clap their hands in worship of the Lord. You know, research in the field of of bioacoustics has revealed that, that every day we are surrounded by millions of ultrasonic songs. For instance, the electron shell of a carbon atom produces the same harmonic scale as a Gregorian chant. Whale songs travel thousands of miles underwater, interacting and crossing over each other. Meadowlarks have a range of 300 notes to their songs. Yeah. Supersensitive sound instruments have, have actually discovered that even earthworms make faint staccato sounds. Arnold Summerfield, the German physicist and pianist, observed that a single hydrogen atom, which emits 100 frequencies, is more musical than a grand piano, which only emits 88. Uh, Science writer Lewis Thomas summed it up this way. He said, if we had better hearing and could discern the singing of seabirds and the rhythmic drumming of schools of mollusks or even the distant distant harmonics of flies hanging over meadows in the sun, the combined sound might lift us up off our feet. All of these trillion sounds of creation in perfect harmony with each other. Have you noticed that? The only discordant sounds out there are the ones made by human beings who have fallen from our place of grace and rebelled against our Creator. All of creation joining in a song of worship, a joyous harmony for which we were made. And personal worship, when you worship God, you adore him and you sing to him and your heart cries out to him and you delight in him and you see his beauty. That's what you're joining into, something, something cosmic in scale for which you were made. When, when Mary, you know, looked at that alabaster jar, uh, probably a marble jar, because most Roman alabaster was actually marble. But she took that bottle of perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' head to anoint him. That act, acknowledging him as the Messiah, preparing him for his death, it's an incredibly personal act of worship. So worship can look different for different people. For you, personal worship might look different from your highly organized pew mate. But, But whatever it is for you, You have to do it. For her, that bottle was the most expensive, precious thing she owned. In a world before antibiotics and sulfa drugs and antifungals and hygiene and modern soap and sanitation, you know, the world, wherever humans were, it stank. It stank horribly because humans in our fallenness, we stank. 
And that bottle of perfume was the one thing that would have enabled her to go about her life every day with a sense of beauty and a a fragrant aroma covering up all of the fallen smells that surround her. She was giving God her very best, her most precious thing, offering it on the head of her Savior. It was in Jesus. What did he say about it? He said it was beautiful. What would personal worship look like for you? Have you experienced it? Do you experience it regularly? Whatever it looks like for you, friends, you must do it. Your soul will shrivel up and die if you are not delighting in your Savior and worshiping Him. It looks different for different people. I, you know, Gene Campbell down here, you know, taking notes vigorously. Uh, he, you know, there are times when he's upstairs playing his piano, and you know he's practicing a piece. There are other times when you hear him upstairs and he's on the piano and you can tell he is worshiping God with all of his heart. He is seeking and savoring his Savior and delighting in his King Jesus. For me, it looks like going to bed at night and, and saying the Lord's Prayer and, and considering my bed as a coffin as I give up consciousness, give up the ghost, so to speak, and go in bed, I, I ask God... Uh, 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 to, to help me to remember my mortality. And then as I wake up the next morning, I give thanks to God for the resurrection of Christ. And I say, this is the day that the Lord has made and I will rejoice and be glad in it. And I start giving thanks to God. And then, then I make my coffee and I feed my cats. And then I sit down with my coffee and my Bible and I read a chapter of the Bible and, and pray. And, and, and for me, that's what it looks like. For you, it could be singing songs to Jesus in the shower and in the car on your way to work. It could look like listening to Tim Keller or Ray Cortese sermons. Uh, uh, in the, you know, it could look like anything, but whatever it looks like for you, you must do it. It's your life, Jesus said. Apart from me, you can do nothing. It's, it's what you were made for. Augustine said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart finds no rest until it finds its rest in you. The author to Hebrews says, set your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, to center your heart and your mind on your Savior, to ascribe to God absolute love and loyalty and delight and praise and honor and power and glory. That is worship. To admire your Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. To admire them to infinitude. That's what worship is. Why is worship difficult? Because it's difficult. It's difficult because it is aesthetic. Aesthetic meaning it relates to uh, beauty and the appreciation of beauty. Jesus calls this act of worship, he calls it a beautiful thing. He doesn't say it was dutiful, it was faithful. He says it was beautiful. It's a powerful thing. To have your heart enraptured and captivated by something that you see is so precious and so admirable and so delightful that you long for it, you hunger for it, you thirst for it. The problem, because it deals with aesthetics and seeing the beauty of God, the problem is there's a lot of other beautiful stuff out there. In their case, what was distracting the disciples? 
Jesus, she shouldn't be worshiping you with that expensive perfume. We could get a lot of ministry done with that perfume. Yes, future pastors, your ministry can prevent you from worshiping Jesus if you start to build your identity on what you get done. That goes, frankly, for all of us, whether it's in your family, in the workplace, or in your school. We could get a lot done by selling. I mean, perfume, it says it was a very expensive thing, and it was. This could have been a couple years' wages worth of perfume. Uh, you know, you, this was not Walgreens' own brand. Uh, and, and so, but, but good things. We could have given it to the poor. That's a good thing. But it's not an ultimate thing. The ultimate thing is Jesus. And it's what happens when we start to make good things ultimate is the ultimate thing starts looking a lot less attractive. And that's when our worship becomes dry and empty and distant and forced. Idols are deceptive. Good things get in the way. You can destroy the marriage you have because you're so fixated on the marriage that you wish you had, and it seems so beautiful to you that you put down your spouse and you're unthankful and bitter and critical. Uh, Good things, they distract us. Uh, Worship is about an ultimate thing. It's aesthetic. We see we're creatures of desire, creatures of beauty. We're hardwired to seek beauty. Uh, Aesthetic creatures who are always finding ultimate beauty somewhere. And the problem is not that we want too much, but that we want too little. We easily look at the beauty of, of things God has made and put our hope in that when the creation itself is saying, look at the Father, look at His Son, look at the Spirit, look at the beauty of God. See, because it's aesthetic, you worship what you find most beautiful. Uh, and that's the rub. Because how many of us can really control what we find to be beautiful? How many of us can control the thoughts of our hearts, the desires and longings of our hearts, and what we see as desirable and admirable? See, Jesus describes it as a beautiful thing. Worship is all tied up with beauty. Goodness in in the Greek language itself is is tied up with the concept of the good, the good and the true and the beautiful. It It was driven by this woman's sense of the beauty of Jesus. That sense of beauty drove her to worship sacrificially, extravagantly, with such expensive perfume. Our choices are driven by what we find to be most beautiful. And at at any given moment, you're going to choose to do what you consider the most beautiful thing. Jonathan Edwards developed this this theme. Uh, At any moment, you are going to make the choice that seems most desirable to you based upon your sense of aesthetics or beauty. You can't do otherwise. Your will is tied to your affections. Your will is tied to your wants, and on some level, it's beyond your ability to control. That's why it's so hard to worship God with all of our hearts, because we can't control our hearts. As fallen creatures, even that sense of beauty is constantly in flux and changing. You know what it's like when you're trying to diet, trying to limit certain kinds of food, and so you have a big full meal, And you have this vision of a healthier you that is a beautiful vision to you. And so somebody comes and passes around a box of of Carl Bissinger dark chocolate-covered raspberries. And they're cool, and they're fresh, and you can smell the raspberry and the chocolate. And that's beautiful to you. But at that moment, the thought of health and being more active 
and, and more alive is more beautiful to you than the fleeting smell of Carl Bissinger chocolate-covered raspberries. And so you make the choice at that moment that seems most desirous and beautiful to you. That vision of a healthy you is more beautiful. So you say, thanks, and you pass the strawberries on to the next person without taking a handful. Let's say, however, these things change. Our sense of beauty is always in flux. Our hearts are always in flux. But out of our hearts flow our actions. Now, let's say it's Tuesday afternoon in your office, and it's 11 o'clock, and you haven't gone to lunch, and you skipped breakfast that morning, and you still have this beautiful vision of a healthy you, but there's a box of Carl Bissinger dark chocolate-covered raspberries floating around the office, and nobody's looking, and you're starved. And at that moment, that Carl Bissinger chocolate-covered raspberry is more beautiful than that vision of a healthy you. So at that moment, you do what is most beautiful to you, which is you grab five of them and take them back to your desk and you start shoving them in your mouth and savoring them and delighting in them because you savor and delight in what is beautiful. You know how this works. In, uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, there's this principle that you can never remove something you truly love and desire without replacing it with a greater love. The theory of the displaced love. Uh, it's why all the alcoholics I know are at coffee shops all the time or, or, or smoking nonstop, except a couple of them. That, no, because, because you've got to displace it with some other love. And if that's not Jesus, it's going to be something else. Uh, because you've got to find a greater love, that vision of being free from an addiction. The beauty of it can motivate. Okay, Greg. You seem to be saying that we always choose based on what we find most desirable or beautiful at the time. But what about instances of coercion? Somebody comes up to you. They stick a gun to your head. They say, your money or your life. Now, at that point, do you really desire? Do you find the thought of giving that person your money beautiful? Not ultimately, all things considered, you would rather not give this person all of your credit cards. But the thought of dying... And leaving your family, your friends, your children with no one to take care of them, at that point, that's an even uglier thought. And so of the options you have, you choose the one that you find most beautiful at that time. And the thought of being able to go home to your family at the end of the day is more beautiful to you than giving up all of your money. Jonathan Edwards said it this way. He said, a man never in any instance wills anything contrary to his desires. He never desires anything contrary to his will. That's why a big part of why worship, real heart worship, can be so difficult is we can't always control what we see as beautiful. Other things may look more attractive to you right now than Jesus, your Savior. It's the reality of it. So how can we control what looks beautiful to you? You can't. You cannot move your heart to love God more. You cannot, as an act of the will, choose to be drawn to his beauty, choose to find him more alluring or more desirable. Nobody really controls how they feel or what catches your eye. That requires something else. That requires something to change inside of you, inside of me. That requires something that we can't fix. And so if you're here today, if your soul is dry as dust, your heart is a parched, cracked, hardened desert toward God, and you want to know how to fix that, 
how to see God as, as more beautiful, as the most attractive, most enticing thing, the thing that you must have above all else if you want to be moved, an intense personal worship that satisfies scandalously extravagant worship, pouring everything you have out to Jesus, excessive worship, the kind of worship that Jesus says is beautiful, then what can you do? What can you do if we're not the master of our own affections? How is it possible? Nothing we're going to do. But I can tell you this. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. In a TV commercial a while back, maybe you saw it, there was a young man and he's struggling with whether, whether or not to go through with an arranged marriage Um, You know, in his home country, arranged marriages are the norm. And uh, and his family had gone to great lengths to find a woman of just very good character, good personality, good family, the right bride for him. But, you know, after living in America for a few years, he was kind of having second thoughts about adhering to this ancient custom, especially since he'd never, ever met his wife-to-be. Still, when... She flew into the airport. He dutifully waited for her, flowers in hand and a gloomy expression on his face. But when she stepped through the terminal, something changed. She was stunningly beautiful. And suddenly, as he catches the smile in her eyes, the beauty and warmth of her face, as he sees her her beauty, her extravagance, her warmth and her love, something changes. His glum demeanor disappears. His face saw her face, and it sent chills down his spine. He caught a glimpse of her smile as she gazed upon her, and something inside of him changed. The thought of marrying this woman was no longer a dreaded duty. It was a delight. What had changed? But that, but that he saw her. Friends, some of you have been standing in the airport holding flowers for Jesus with a frown on your face for years. Look at Jesus. It's what happened to this woman, Mary. She looked at Jesus. She saw him. This is the Mary who sat at his feet and learned from him while, while Martha, you know, fretted about in the kitchen. This is Mary who had just heard Jesus talk about his impending crucifixion and death and suffering for her sake. She saw Jesus. She saw his beauty. She saw his smile. She saw his love, his self-sacrificial commitment. She saw him and she saw he was beautiful. Often we serve God out of obligation. We drag ourselves to church. We force ourselves to serve others. Our hearts aren't in it. We're like like that guy at the airport. We're trying to live holy lives because we know we should, but it's burdensome and it becomes joyless. And, And what can change this? Not what we do, but only Jesus seeing him. When you get a vision of who he truly is, of who he is for you, his care for you personally, then, then you can become engaged in worship of him. That's when nothing can hold us back. Something had happened to change Mary to move her on the inside, to shift how she saw the world. She's, she's the one who sat at his feet, and, and she saw Jesus. He raised her brother Lazarus from the dead. She had seen him, and he'd captured her heart, and so her chains fell off, and her heart was free, and she rose, went forth, and followed Jesus. Something I experienced when I was a young Christian, you know, 
uh, my early days as a Christian, I had come to believe uh, that Jesus was the Savior. And, uh, and one of the weird things that happened is, is I found myself being moved for the first time to worship him and to worship my, my father. And it was strange coming from an unchurched sort of atheistic background because suddenly what seemed completely uninteresting to me became the most captivating thing in the world. What had been burdensome became beautiful. And it's not that something in Jesus or the Bible changed. It's not that the church changed. No, something in me changed. I began to worship him. I began to want him. I began to see in him what was goodness itself, the pure, fierce, and blazing beauty of Christ my King, Christ my Rescuer, gazing on His greatness, immersing myself in His Word, this great love letter of grace we call the Bible. And, and I, as I set my gaze on Him, my heart was moved and broken and humbled and mended and comforted and liberated. And, and I began to find in Him an overflowing stream welling up, giving life. I came to life again because I'd seen His love. And it captured my soul. Has he captured your soul? Look at him. What do we see? Even in this historical account, we see Jesus. Where is he hanging out? Did you notice what house he's in? The house of Simon the leper. Jesus, pure, holy God in the flesh, and he's choosing to hang out with the worst social outcast there was. Somebody who didn't just have a crippling disease, but they were separated from their family, from their synagogue, from their workplace, from all of society. They had to live out on the edge of town so that others wouldn't be infected by their uncleanness. They had to cry out unclean as they walked through the streets so everybody could pull away and grab their children away from them in disgust. And when Jesus sees us, our hearts hardened and dry and cold, unclean, he knows how you've been outcast. He knows how you've been ostracized. He knows what you've done, and he knows what's done to you. And he chooses to stay in your house, the house of Simon the leper, because this is his embrace. He wanted his people to come home to him, to be clean, to be transformed so that he might wash them, so that they could come back to the Father's embrace. There was a recent 60 Minutes special when he told me about uh, how Colombia ended its civil war. Did any of you see this? Um, you know, the, the recent civil war has been going on for decades in, in Colombia. Um, you know, leftist rebels had holed up in the rainforest, and the conflict continued. And, and when the government wanted leftist rebels to lay down their weapons and reintegrate back into Colombian society, uh, it's interesting what they did. They didn't mint more tanks and more machine guns. Uh, as the holiday approached, as Christmas approached, they actually uh, strung up Christmas trees in the middle of the rainforest with motion sensors and batteries that would light up whenever rebels would walk by to remind them of home and that Christmas is coming. They would take photographs of individual rebels' mothers and even baby photographs provided by the mothers of the rebels that only that one rebel would recognize, and they would plaster them on trees throughout the rainforest. They would take uh, uh, brightly lit LED globes and, and fill them, uh, you know, with all sorts of, like, treats and things from home, and they'd float them down the river. They would put signs up 
from their, their mothers with a handwritten note saying, come home. They would drop signed soccer balls from helicopters above the rainforest. In all of this, moms saying, before you were a rebel, you were my son, and I want you to come home. In all, 28,000 rebels demobilized and went home, forcing the rebel leadership to the negotiating table ending the war and bringing peace to Colombia, not by weapons, they were won by love. Look at Jesus, friends. Look at his love. He's saying, I just want the war to end, and I'm coming to you with love and blessing. I want you to come home. As he washes us and makes us clean, as he did for Simon the leper, as he did for Mary, that's love. Telling someone to love you will never elicit love back. You try it with your spouse, try it with your kids, try it with your girlfriend, your boyfriend. Say, love me. I command you to love me. Do your duty. Put me first. And watch what happens with their heart. Let me know. But what elicits love in response is when somebody says, no, I love you. I love you is what brings love. And what Jesus is saying here, he's saying he knows your uncleanness. He knows your leprosy. He knows your bondage. He knows where your heart is, your fears, your anxieties, your pain and your tears and your isolation. And he's saying, I know all that and I love you. I'm your creator. How does he do this? It's in verse 2 when he says he's on his way to the cross. Everything we deserve for our treason, for our rebellion, Jesus is going to take it on himself on the cross. He's going to take the full brunt of the wrath of God, the hell that we should deserve. He knows this explosion of wrath is coming, and he takes it. He takes it and absorbs all of it into himself and lets it destroy him instead of you because he wants you to see the beauty that he sees in you, the beauty of his love for you, wanting you more than gold or silver. He's saying, you alone will satisfy me, and I want you to find satisfaction in me, in private, in public, in every way. Friends, look at Jesus and keep looking at him until he breaks open your heart, heart, and fills it with his love. The movie Armageddon focuses on a a burly oil mining veteran by the name of Harry Stamper, played by Bruce Willis. And Stamper has been called upon to take part in a last-ditch mission to save the human race from a massive and unstoppable asteroid that is careening right toward the planet Earth. And so they land a space shuttle on the surface of this deadly asteroid. And Harry and his compatriots drill a hole deep inside the asteroid's core. And they drop into it a nuclear bomb that might just split the asteroid in two so that the two halves will miss the earth and save the human race. There's a climactic moment when the charge has been set and the shuttle is about to lift off and something goes wrong. And it becomes clear that somebody is going to have to stay behind manually to detonate the bomb. Without hesitation, Harry Stamper chooses the job. And in the final minutes, Harry speaks by video phone to the command center in Houston, and he says his last words to his daughter, Grace, played by Liv Tyler. And with tears streaming down her cheeks, the daughter burbles to her dad, everything good I have inside of me, I have from you. I love you so much. 
I'm so proud of you, and I'm so scared. There won't be anything to be scared of soon, Harry assures her. I'll look in on you. I love you, Grace. And moments later, Harry kneels on the surface of that asteroid as it violently shakes with volcanic eruptions and struggling to maintain hold of the detonator. He watches the shuttle safely escape, and then Harry stares the beautiful blue planet rotating quietly in space. A gentle smile creases his rugged face as he whispers, We win, Gracie. And then he presses the detonator. And suddenly the screen fills with a racing stream of images as seen through the love of a father's eyes. We see back in time to a sunny day when Harry is pushing his laughing little girl on a backyard swing set. And we're treated to a a blur of images reflecting the glorious and grainy moments of miraculous human life. We see a moment in the future when Gracie will be dressed in a radiant bridal dress on her wedding day. And then the asteroid erupts. In a blinding explosion, it fractures in two and careens clear of our planet as the saved of the earth explode in wild cheers of joy. Friends, that's what Jesus did for you. He saw the planet earth. He knew the wrath of the Father must come as the Father is good and just and we are not. And by prearranged plan, Jesus went on the asteroid He drilled the hole, he sent everyone away safely, and he detonated the bomb so that we, the saved of the earth, might explode in joy and praise to our God and Savior. Friends, look at Jesus. He's your Savior. He's wild about you. He's your friend. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we cry out to you and to our Father through you that you would consecrate the elements on this table, that we would see you, Lord Jesus. Turn your face toward us. Apart from you, we perish. We need you, Lord. My prayer, Father, is that all of your sheep would see the beauty of your face, the goodness of your love, and the completeness of your sacrifice for our sake, that we might respond in worship to you. Amen.